Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy of Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui, the Alabama woodworker. Say hello, Hui. Hello, Guy. And Sean Walker of Simple Co. fame. Say hello, Sean. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so enthusiastic today. Yeah. Uh, this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspective on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. Right now we have one level and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. So with all that being said, I think we're going to get right into the questions and you are up. So this is a quick question, and I think it's going to be a relatively quick answer. We'll try to make it, you know, a little bit more interesting. But it's been on here for a while, and um, and I figured, you know what, we got to answer this guy. Um, so this is from Aaron, and he's got he's got a question uh, about small parts holding using a plow plane to make the groove for a drawer bottom. So I've never actually used a plow plane, but I've seen. <laughs> that's why. That's why I never picked the question. Like, that's why I, I never picked it. But I've seen them used, and I do think that I have on my vice, on my work holding sort of accessories, an answer for them that might help. Now, the things that I've seen people use are are very simple, like um, planing stops, uh, narrow, shallow, na- uh, short planing stops, because you kind of have to make sure that it's below the um, surface in which the maximum depth of your plow plane is going to be um, plowing out for those those drawer grooves. Uh, so you could do that. The only problem is that sort of coming back on, to, on the, um, the reverse stroke, uh, if you don't pick up your plane, you're going to hit the work piece and then it's going to come back. So uh, something that I have on my uh, vice is a, I, I believe it's called the Veritas inset vice. It's a low profile vice and they have a little, they, they offer a little tiny stop. It's only like about, I think maybe three eighths of an inch, a quarter inch tall. So uh, something like that would definitely work. Uh, one thing that you do want to make sure is that again, whatever is holding the piece is clearing the plane to make sure that you're not actually hitting um, the, the work holding itself. Sean, do you, do you, have you, you know, held any small pieces for, for these types of reasons and what have been some of the solutions or things that you've used that kind of helped you in your shop? While you were answering, I was thinking, how would I hold a small part for uh, using a plow plane? And that's um, in my shop without buying anything and this is probably a dumb answer. Uh, I would probably use double-sided tape. No, no, that's not dumb. <laughs> Damn it, that's, that's what good. I was going to say. That's a, that's a really All good right. answer, I got, actually. I got, I got nothing now. <laughs> Thank you, Hui, for asking me next. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, guy. I'll ask you next on that's the right. next one. Well, I, I, think, I think I've got a, a, another one. So, All right. What well, do you got, well, guy? Well, what do you got, man? I was going to say use the blue tape trick. <laughs> yeah, well, that, yeah, that works. Which is too. basically double stick tape. Yeah. You know, holding small parts like that is always kind of difficult. And yep. I, I don't do a lot of handwork, but there are times where I've just like rigged up weird stuff on my bench where things work more of like in a pinch mm-hmm. that, that pinch the piece together. Yeah. Yeah. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I don't even really know what a plow plane is, so I'm <laughs> I'm probably not the best guy. That's a, that's why I never answer the, the, the pick this question. It's like I don't even know what a plow plane is. What uh, is a plow plane? Is it like a rabbit plane or a like a router plane? You would probably use it to cut grooves for like drawer bottoms and stuff like that in your in your yeah. in your uh, pieces. So imagine you had a box, you need to cut a quarter inch by quarter inch groove at the bottom, quarter inch up from the bottom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would just use a dado stack and my table saw or a router <laughs> bit. Yeah, there you go. Heck, I yeah. could be wrong. I think that's what that is. I don't. I don't have one. <laughs> no, no, no. That 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 is. You're you're right. You're right, Sean. It that's right, exactly good. what you. Yeah, yeah. But yes, I would use the, a router table. Yeah, I would use a table saw around table. <laughs> and hold it down. I would use a push pad. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Well, I, I think yeah. those. I think that's a great answer, though. But blue painters tape, double stick tape. If you don't have anything fancy, and I think those are good like solutions that aren't any investment whatsoever, right? Like just on consumables, really. So, I think yeah. those are great answers. So, all right, yeah, cool. So, I guess the next question goes to Sean from Simple Cove. This is from Jason. I'm building a planer sled for my DeWalt 735 to do face joining. Do I attach the stop or the fence part to the leading or the trailing edge? I've seen it done both ways on YouTube. What in the world is the correct way? Thanks in advance. And I'm a big fan of the podcast and all of your work. I think he was talking to me, my very limited work. If you're not familiar with the planer sled, typically you've got a, a MDF board or a, a known flat piece of plywood, maybe Baltic birch. That's a little bit narrower than the capacity of your planer. Uh, again, the important part is that it's flat. Uh, you place a rough board on top of that panel. You shim it until it no longer rocks. You fasten the rough board down. Uh, I usually use hot glue to, uh, to fasten the shims to the uh, MDF board and, and fasten the rough board to the shims. And then you run it through your planer. And with it referencing that flat surface, uh, it'll remove the waste from the high spots until that board is flat. Pop the board off your MDF panel, flip it over, and then you're going to get a parallel face on the opposite side. Now, one thing I didn't mention, and it's Jason's question, is where do you place the cleat? Uh, because when you're running the board through the planer, you're going to get some uh, some forces kicking back on it. And I personally, I glue the cleats on the trailing and end of the sled to capture the workpiece as it goes through the planer. Now I can see the confusion because you want the rough lumber to not slip when it's going through the planer and you got the rollers that turn one direction and then the cutter head that turns the opposite direction. Mm. Uh, but the cutter head is going to be the one that's going to be putting more force down on the rough lumber, pushing it towards the front of the plane or the trailing end of the sled. So I always put the cleat on the trailing edge. It's the... It's the end that goes in the in the in the planer last. Yeah. Uh, do you guys put it on any other? You put it on the leading or the trailing? How do you all put it on? I would I would put it on the trailing edge. That that sounds right to me because the cutter head's going to feel like the cutter head is going to be putting more force on the workpiece than than the rollers will. I concur. I've never used a planer sled like that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. However, the 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 physics of it seems to dictate that you would have the the cleat on the trailing edge to prevent it from kicking back. Yeah. Yep. Now, one thing to keep in mind when you're looking at something on YouTube is they may have shown you a picture of or a video of the board coming out of the planer and you're seeing that cleat. It looks like it could p- potentially be the front of the board, but it's coming out of the front of the planer and that's mm. technically the trailing edge. Uh, so you may have gotten a little confused when looking at that. Uh, 
it may just look like it was the front part of the board, but in reality, it's the trailing edge of the, uh, the planer sled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. YouTube trickery. I know it's that, it's that stuff on YouTube. YouTubers. Yeah, there was, there was a guy that, that did, he doesn't make a lot of YouTube videos, but he, the couple that he's done have been really good. Um, and he did one on a planer sled that he made. Oh, I can't remember his name. He's a real funny guy. He's from California. It's something garage. Do you guys know who I'm talking about? No, no, no. something That's garage. Right. Yeah, it's it's his name, and then it's something that garage. Anyways, if you do a YouTube search for planer sled, it'll probably come up. I said I can't remember his name, but I, I really like his videos. I wish he did more. Is it my garage woodshop? Yep. Uh wow. okay, I know that guy. Yeah. yeah well, I don't know. I know of him. I Yeah, he's he's him. he's really funny and he puts together really good videos. So, but he did that one and he did has a really good planer sled. So, you might want to check that out. Yeah, cool. I I just saw the thumbnail for it and it's it's a uh, it's pretty elaborate compared to what I end up doing. I just yeah, it's pretty elaborate. Hot glue <laughs> with shims and slam it through there. Yeah, but it works. I mean, Oh yeah, absolutely. And when I had a yeah, it depends uh, on if, it, if it's a one-time thing or this is something that you're looking as a as a fixture in your shop because you may not have a joiner and you're dealing with a lot of wood like this. So it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I've got to use this all the time. And having a more elaborate one, other than just a piece of melamine with some shims and hot glue, right, would be more appropriate. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the the the, the shims and hot glue method. Mm-hmm. Not no, at it, all, but there are people that want a more permanent solution, and that that guy had a really good solution as a more sure. permanent thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Good point. So, uh, I think I have the next question. You got the next question, guy. It says, "Hello, guy, we and Sean. My name is Chris Morris, and I live in the West Midlands, UK. And I have a question regarding finish, if I may. I always like finishing questions, and I think our listeners like fin- finishing questions too, Chris." So he goes on, I've been woodworking for about two years now, and in that time I've been primarily using white oak with occasional use of ash, hard maple, and walnut. But I'm at a loss when it comes to adding finish. I'm simply unsure where to start, so I don't use any. So could you help me, please? (laughs) (laughs) I do understand after listening to your podcast from the beginning that this subject is a bit of a minefield, and you've covered it numerous times for other listeners. But for someone starting out who would like to use low VOC finishes to protect my asthmatic wife, what would you recommend starting with? Thanks Mm -hmm. in advance and keep up the great work. Well, Chris, I've got a couple answers for you, but I'm only going to give one. Mm -hmm. And that's mainly because I don't want to take everything and not give it to the other guys to answer. So a low, a low VOC, VOC is a volatile organic compound, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Am I correct in saying that? That's what VOC stands for. Sounds right. And it usually has to do with anything that creates a lot of fumes and mm-hmm. can cause problems. So examples of low VOC finishes would be most of your, your waterborne finishes where water is used as a carrier mm-hmm. for the finish. Um, which are your water-based lacquers, your water-based polys, um, 
they and I use quite a bit of this too, which is water based uh, conversion varnish. But that all that the, the the conversion varnish and the lacquer that really needs to be sprayed. Yeah. So my recommendation, and this is a really easy finish to use, and I don't think it has high VOC, is shellac. There are many, you can, it's something you can make yourself. You don't have to use denatured alcohol. I don't know what's available in the UK, but here in the United States, we call it grain alcohol. It's like 190 proof mm-hmm. fire water. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can use that also to dissolve the shellac flakes. Mm-hmm. I believe it is low VOC because the alcohol flashes off very quick. Mm-hmm. There are a hundred different ways to apply shellac. And the beautiful thing is they are all correct. I am going to, of course, shamelessly plug a video I did on YouTube of how to apply a simple shellac finish. Mm-hmm. And it's how I apply shellac. Um, and I also have a video on how to make shellac. So Make or mix? Uh, well, you're splitting hairs, Sean. <laughs> oh no! This sounds- <laughs> uh, how to how to how to how to mix your own shellac, make your own shellac from shellac flakes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I don't know if that's mixing or making. I'm it not sounds making. Right to me. I'm not. I'm not a bug. I'm not a lac bug making shellac. I'm a real. <laughs> I'm I'm a real boy. So, with that, I will turn it over to Sean. Do you have any suggestions for Chris? Um, I would probably check out Osmo Pollux. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a hard wax oil, I believe they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but is it low VOC? I don't know. I, be- I, be- I believe it <laughs> is. I believe it, I believe it yeah, is. Yeah, I believe it is. I believe it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, See, I was going to suggest like something like um, Armor Seal or a, or a, or a spray uh, lacquer. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or a wiping shla- or a wiping varnish, but those aren't low VOC. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I would give, I would give that a try. I mean, it all depends. Um, I really like the idea of the water based, and if you need a little bit of uh, color, you can always dye it first mm-hmm. uh, before applying the water based uh, poly. Uh, that's a, or you could always go the shellac route and find the tone that you want. Um, but if you're wanting something, something else, try the Osmo Pollux. Um, I'm not going to say any other brands because I'm going to leave Hui a little bit of a wiggle room here and pass it off to him. Well, I, I, you know, Osmo Pollux, uh, you know, the other, the other one that's, I think, uh, very prevalent, uh, that we all know about is Rubio, Rubio Monocoat. Um, I, I personally, I, I've used shellac to get the ambering and to get that really rich color and then use the water-based finish on top Um, sitting at a desk that that did that that i've done that with and it looks great it looks wonderful it looks like it's an oil finish you know it it just has a rich color to it i don't honestly i really don't think and guy you mentioned this I, i don't think you can go wrong with shellac and regardless of whether or not you go in a different direction, I think everybody should at least learn how to apply shellac. I think it's a very, very useful um, finish to just know having your wheelhouse because Freddie has said this. I don't know who else has said this, but 
you know, shellac sticks to everything and everything sticks to shellac, right? So it's mm-hmm. just a great finish to use. Um, I think that's, you know, the number one thing. And then, of course, you know, Sean, you already mentioned the hard oil, hard oil waxes and whatnot. And those, I think those are pretty good too. There the, are a ton the, of different, go ahead. I'm sorry. Guys. I was going to say the, the real issue with a lot of these low VOC finishes is they do use water. They're waterborne. So they use water as a, a, as a carrier for the finish. And they're typically water white. What I mean by water white, not Walter white, water white, is that it does not impart anything to the wood itself as far as giving it more character. So, for example, let's say you have a piece of uh, tiger maple, and you know the you can see the the little lines on it and such. Right. If you put a straight water-based finish over the top of that, you know what it's going to look like? Exactly like it did with no finish on it. Mm-hmm. It's per- it's going to dry perfectly clear. Right. The thing with oil is if you put oil on there, it absorbs into it and it gives it amber tones and it absorbs at different rates at different parts of the wood. So that's going to give you that shimmer effect that you get with tiger maple. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use a big word here. Chatoyance. Don't ask me. (laughs) But that gives you the, 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 that's what makes everybody talks about grain popping. Yeah. That's grain popping. I I, I see it all the time. People I put this water-based finish out. Oh, look how the grain popped. It's never going to pop with the water-based. <laughs> it's just yeah, not going to happen, guys. So, or they put it on walnut. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look how the grain popped. It looks exactly the same. same. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so, and and that's why I didn't mention this before because I was hoping, you know, Sean or we would pick up on it, which is to use shellac, not as uh, the, the complete finish, but use it because shellac acts a lot like the oil does too. Yep. And it'll mm-hmm. it'll pop the grain. Yeah. So you can put just a you know a, a couple coats of that on, not really have to go crazy about how you're gonna figure out how to do the final finish and do the luster on it with steel wool or sandpaper. What am I gonna do? So just put down the shellac, a couple layers mm-hmm. of it, get the, you know, pop the grain. I'm using air quotes here, pop the grain on it. And then put the water-based polyurethane over the top of it. And like we said, I've done that a number of times. Mm-hmm. And it looks really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't tell the difference. It feels different than an oil finish, but it looks the same. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there and are instances where you want to keep that water white appearance on a board. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to keep it, if you have some contrasting maple and walnut, or something and you want to keep the the maple nice and bright you could just go straight for mm-hmm. the water or the uh water-based poly good yep. point good point yep. yep yep all right so i think we're back to wheat. sean no back to wheat damn it well, I, okay. don't mean damn, I don't mean damn it that we's got the next question i was just trying to figure out who had the next question i guess <laughs> we know That's what you meant um <laughs> this is from big squiddy i think i think that's just his handle name this is an interesting handle name big squiddy 
Um, he says, hi, workshop guys. I have a question about case construction. I've started building my shop with mobile carts. Smart man. One for my miter saw, miter station, router, etc. I recently started using pocket hole screws since they are bang around shop carts and I wanted to make them as quickly as possible. My question is, what is the best construction, bottom and top sandwich between side panels or bottom and tops sitting on top of side panels, leaving edge exposed? I add a strong back on each case. I've seen cases made both ways, so I wonder... What do you guys think? Wow. For me, I've always thought that it was top bottom sandwiched on the sides. And usually what I do is I actually will add, um, you know, a thicker piece on the bottom so that I can attach my casters to it. And I'll attach some type of quote unquote countertop, right? So it's either another piece of plywood or. So you're saying that you want the, the sides to sit on top of the the bottom and the top to sit on top of the sides. The bottom so the sides are sandwiched between. The no, top no, 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 nope, nope, okay. nope. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So let, let, let just, just to be clear. So it would be the sides are sandwiching okay. the top and the bottom. Right. Um, the left and right edges of the top and the bottom are inside of the side panels. Yes. All I know is that everything I've I've looked at and all the case constructions that I've seen, that that is sort of the way to do it. I don't know necessarily why. So I, I'm going to defer to you, Guy or Sean, with that. But that's the way I've done it. That's the way I've always seen it. So I've never seen it done the way that he, the second way he mentioned here, where the bottom and top are sandwiching the sides with the edges exposed. Yeah, I think it's it's done the way you're mentioning, Sean, strictly for aesthetics, because nobody wants to see end grain. Yeah, on okay. those things. Well, some people like end grain. Myself, mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan. Right. Um, so when you're building a, like a mobile cart or something like that, it's just a lot easier. And see, most of the time too, you know, if there's shop carts and things like that, you can just take the thing. You don't even need to use pocket screws. Mm. Just clamp the things together and put screws right through the side, right through the side, right yeah. through the thing, you know, mm -hmm. and you can do it that way. Myself, I've I've built them all different kinds of ways, but I've I don't think I have ever put the top or sandwiched the sides between the top and bottom. Right, it's right. always been, you know, the 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 top and bottom are are hidden inside mm -hmm. the sides. Sean, same exact way. It just to me, it wouldn't feel right doing it the other way, especially if you're going to put a a, a top on it. Um, mm -hmm. It just wouldn't wouldn't seem right having a a top, a sub top on top of the left and the right panel, and then put another top on top of that. To me, it would just look top heavy. Mm. But again, if it's shop furniture, you know, there's no right or wrong answer to that as long as it, you know. Mm -hmm. Holds up to what you need it to do, but I do the same way. I, I sandwich in between so that you it's flush on top and there's no top on top. Yeah, but I I get what you're saying, guy. If he if he's if he's doing it the other way, right? Um, well, the I guess the reason why it's probably done the way we do it is because so that we don't see the end grain, right? Is yep. that correct, guy? Yeah. yeah but where then I'm I'm going to take that and I'm going to put a larger top over the top of that. 
Correct. Correct. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, so th- th- I guess that's the stipulation. If he's just making the carcass, then maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't ha- matter one way or the other. Um, in, in that case, it's going to look pretty much the same either way. Yep. Um, but for all, I guess what we're assuming is that there is going to be some type of ca- quote unquote countertop or top over top of it that's going to be the work surface essentially. Yeah, and I would reverse that and say if there's not going to be a countertop put on top of that, I would probably put the top and the bottom to where you can see the exposed edges. Yeah. Now, again, that's just me. If Mm. you're not going to have a top on top of that, Mm. and it makes probably no sense, but that's just my my thought thinking of how I would like to to do that if it were me. Something that I've realized that – it took me the longest time to, to realize this, but uh, kitchen cabinets, the top of the carcass itself, you know, you have the front stretcher and the back stretcher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for the longest time, I was making, particularly in my shop cabinets, I hit my head over, hit myself over the head now. I've just been wasting material. I always used to make that just a solid piece. Oh, wow. And now I think about it, it's like, that's such a waste. There's no need for that. Because yeah, um, all, the, all the weight's being transferred through the sides. Exactly. Exactly. So so I should have been using stretchers all th- this time, which I do now. But for the longest time, I just would make it a solid piece, which makes, uh, yeah, it makes no sense. Whatsoever. He's got that. Thanks. He's got that rocket engineer money. It's all right. Yeah. Rocket engineer money. <laughs> rocket scientist money. Yep. That's uh, whatever they call it these days. Rocket yeah. surgeon. Yeah. All right. Um, so I think, I think it's your question next. <laughs> Sean. It is. I didn't mean to jump up. You're, like you're that trying. Is. You're trying to hijack the show again. <laughs> no, not again. That, not again. Not again. There you go with that control thing again. No, no, no. You're talking. You're saying it to the wrong person. No, usually not me. The one does it? Well, that's right. Yeah, it is usually we. <laughs> All so, right. Okay. Let, let me let me do my host thing. Well, thanks for the question. I think Sean, you have the next one. Indeed, I do. This is from Joey from Winter Wolf Woodworking. Recently built a router table slash cabinet because my wife doesn't know enough about woodworking to stop me from adding to my shop, for now at least. The carcass (laughs) came together nicely, all three quarter inch birch ply with pocket screws, and it was all square and seemed right until the drawers came into play. In total, there are five drawers, two over or under on the bottom left, one bigger bottom right, and then one on each side where the router lift goes. The drawers themselves seem to measure square unless my public school math is failing me. However, some of the drawers seem to be harder to pull in and out, and I'm using the full extension drawer slides from the Home Depot. Also, when the drawer fronts are attached, they seem to be a little wonky when spaced correctly, and some just won't close flush. So what's going on? And I'm not going to list every single scenario of what's going on because I'm going to leave a little bit for the, for the fellas to answer. So I'm going to take a stab at it and then pass it on. But, you know, as far as the drawers, not sliding in and out smoothly and having a little resistance, um, the first thing that I would say is you could potentially have cupped or bowed panels that are going to cause the interior dimension to be a little bit different than what you're measuring at the edge of the case. It could be, for instance, 25 and seven eighths, but on the inside it's bowed. So it's a little bit less than that. And it's just going to cause it to bind a little bit. So that's one theory that I have on the uh, the, the binding of the drawers. And I'm going to let the, the guys answer here in just a second. But I'm going to move on to the second part. And you talk about the drawer fronts seem to be a little wonky when they're spaced correctly and some won't close flush. Um, 
I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to when he says that they won't close flush. So, you know, does he mean that there's a space on the backside of the drawer, uh, meaning that it's not touching the frame or does it sit proud of the other drawer fronts? I guess that's, that's kind of the same thing. So Mm. without, you know, without that information, I would make sure that the edges of the panels are all flush. Um, I've not seen router, the router cabinet that he's built, so I'm not sure if it's frameless or if it has a frame, but I would start with that. I've actually run into that before where, you know, you got pocket holes, you put the cabinet together and some of the dividers, uh, they're just, they just don't line up flush with the edges of the other panels that it's connecting to. And it could cause to, uh, make it look like there's a, a gap behind it. Uh, and next I would uh, confirm that the drawer fronts are flat. I have used crappy plywood before from home Depot. Well, Home Depot, I might as well go ahead and say it. And every piece I cut had a twist to it. And if you're using one piece drawer fronts and they're twisted, they're not going to touch the frame on one corner. Um, but ultimately, as you can tell from my answers, I would start by examining the panels to make sure that they're flat. Uh, do you have any bows or anything like that? And you're just going to have to compensate for these type of anomalies. Um, if everything else lines up, like you said, if the drawers are square the f- and the frame is square and it, everything's touching... You need to just inspect the plywood and see if there's, you know, again, this this is with me without me knowing much about the router cabinet, but check the plywood. And um, so I'm going to stop there and pass it off to Hui and see what you think about the drawer situation and the drawer front situation. Something that's actually happened to me before is exactly what happened to Joey here is getting a little bit of resistance. And what I did was I, I actually checked what the side to side spacing was between uh, between the I guess the drawer sides from the front and versus from the back and what I noticed was that the back was actually kicked out by about a quarter of an inch so what that actually did was put a little extra additional uh, uh, stress on the drawer slides themselves and um, yeah to, to fix that I, I I took that divider apart and then you know shimmed it or not shimmed it so was that was that a problem with the the plywood itself, or was that a, that was a problem with the, it, it was something that I had done. Yeah, I I didn't. Align I just want to make that clear that you made the mistake. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was it was my mistake. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So wait, it wasn't bad plywood. It was you, right? Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, yes, we, yes. well, we've determined that it was all Hui's fault. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thanks. Um, as for the drawer front thing, I, I guess I don't understand what he means by they seem to be a little wonky. Like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, Lucky? Yeah, and some won't close flush. So are some drawer fronts forward of the other drawer front? Um, that may be a symptom of how you have the drawer slides aligned in horizontal space the 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 wonkiness he's talking about the thing that that i don't want to say a lot of people don't realize because i think everybody realizes it but they just ignore it Mm -hmm. are the slots in the drawer slides cabinet side and the slots that are in the drawer part Mm -hmm. i deal i've dealt with this quite a bit because i've installed hundreds upon hundreds of these drawer slides and a lot of them i've done i've done with a um inset face mm-hmm. you know, with a little reveal around it so what i typically do is 
on the the part that attaches to the cabinet, mm-hmm. I use the drawers, the slots for the screws that are horizontal. Right, right, yep. And on the drawers themselves, I use the vertical Verticals. ones. Yeah. So what he's talking about, the space correctly, and some won't close flush. Well, if you use those horizontal slots, you can push the drawer slides back. So let's say, let's say they're, let me give a, uh, something I just dealt with not too long ago on a cabinet I built where they, the, the drawers were overlay. The drawer fronts were overlay. In other words, they hit the drawer front, the, the frame of the cabinet and mm-hmm. they didn't go, they weren't inset. So I, and they were full extension drawer slides. So I got everything right. You know, I measured everything. I used all my, 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 really expensive stuff and got on there and I, I put it in there and the, the drawer went in, everything worked great. Put the drawer front on. When I put the drawer front on, the top was hitting, but there was a gap at the bottom. Okay. Right. So what does that tell you? That tells you that the drawer itself is not flush with the face frame. Mm-hmm. So the, I, the drawer, not the drawer face, but the drawer itself that you're mm-hmm. attaching the drawer front to. So what you have to do with that, since it's pointing up, you go in the back of the drawer and you raise up the back using the vertical slots to compensate for that. Right. And then you can push the drawer down. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. Or if one side is touching and the other side isn't, that means you have to take one of those drawer slides on the cabinet side and push it back so the drawer sits front. Everybody wants to use fast, quick, easy method of doing this stuff. And they do, and they come out all right. But like if you're selling these, you're putting these these drawer slides in some type of high-end cabinet and it's got to be perfect, you have to be able to adjust them and you have to know how to adjust them. And it's really just common sense when you look at it that way. These ones I'm using the horizontal slots. These ones I'm using the vertical slots. And it gives you adjustability up and down, left and right, front and back. So it'll eliminate that wonkiness, but it takes time. And then once they're set, then use the screw holes that have just one hole in it and it, it, and it'll lock everything together. Does that make sense? Yep. 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 Or am I just ranting again? No, no, no. that's, that's actually a really, really, really good thing to mention. Yep. Yeah. I took notes. <laughs> I actually picked this question because you know, I, I use this podcast as a learning experience myself because I by no means know everything, not even 10%, maybe 15 But I took this because I knew that you've had your fair share of installing drawer slides and you would have a solution. Mm-hmm. And that was a good tip that I picked up. Yeah. Good. Well, I hope other people picked up too. As far as the, the, the drawers, some are tight and some are loose. It's exactly what we said before. It's the distance of the slides to the cabinet parts of the slides. I don't know yeah. which, which one was called, which yeah. the cabinet or drawer side, but those things are, are really sensitive to, you know, they're supposed to be within a 32nd of an inch. 
And if yeah. they're off that by like an eighth of an inch or something, they're just, mm-hmm. just going to have problems. Yeah. That always, you know, that that's always something that I'm aware of when I make drawers. I'm like, crap, there's a half in, half inch on each side. They have to be yep. precise. Yep. And, and with my, what was it? I think it was my CNC cabinet. Everything matched except, you know, measuring the, the divider area, but the, the panel was cupped. So on the mm-hmm. side, it was bowing out. The middle drawer was tight when pushing it in, and all the other drawers were were normal. And there was just not much I could do about that. This is an instance where I love using metric for for that, for just to get the right sizing of the drawers and whatnot. And it's just so much easier to have that like square number as opposed to oh yeah, you know three thirty seven, you know yeah. ten and three thirty seconds of an inch. You know, it's like oh. Have you guys installed any of the undermount drawer slides? I have uh, not. Yeah, I'd like to, but I've just not. I would like to as well. Actually, if you if you build the cabinet right and you build the drawers correctly, they're really easy to install. Yeah, <laughs> um, but they don't hold a heck of a lot of weight, and they're not really good for a shop cabinet. They're more for you know your kitchen cabinets. Right. Uh, they do hold some weight. I shouldn't say that, but I, I just don't think they're as durable as like the side mount, the, the full extension slide side mounts. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some, uh, like all the, when I built my corner thing with all my 40 drawers and the bottom has the 20 drawers, I bought really cheap drawer slides and I'm paying for it now. Oh, are they starting to undo? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they're not flat and the drawer fronts aren't flat anymore because ball bearings have fallen out mm-hmm. and the, the, they're not flush in the front. Some sit back an eighth of an inch, some stick out an eighth of an inch. Mm-hmm. They just look horrible. And I, I, and that's my own fault for buying cheap drawer slides. Yeah. The so, economy drawer slides, right? The, um, yeah, these things are like three bucks a piece, three yeah. bucks a pair. Yeah. I've yeah. had to replace, I've had to replace two sets in my shop pro tip there guys if you're going to do this and you want it to last a while and it's going to see a lot of use do yourself a favor and and spend a little bit don't get super cheap on your drawer hardware yeah for sure because it'll 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 pay for itself in the end so yeah all right who's got the next question guy you got the last question i I got the last question Mm -hmm. all right all right so this question comes from Gavin. And this is kind of a long yeah. question, but I'm going to read it because it's relevant. First, he says, thanks for sharing your thoughts and experience on this podcast. Guy, you are awesome. Well, thanks, Gavin. <laughs> That's not there. What? <laughs> Whatever. Keep moving. Keep moving. <laughs> All right. Gavin said I'm awesome. I had a question for you about staining frame and panel doors. This is another finishing question. Again, I know people love finishing questions. A few months back, I made a few cabinets I wanted to match reasonably well with existing kitchen cabinets made from birch. Everything was going well, but when I came to staining the wood, I ran into issues. I had tested a few stains on a piece of the birch I was using for the face frames rail styles and found a Verithane premium fast dry interior wood stain, the color being Kona, had a close enough color to the existing cabinets that the difference shouldn't be noticed as the cabinets were going in different rooms. 
That's pretty reasonable. Mm -hmm. After the wipe on, let it sit for a few minutes and wipe off process, I discovered that the panels of the doors were significantly darker than the rails and styles. I tried a second application of stain to just the frame to try to darken them to even out the coloring, but that didn't do much. The wood for the rails and the styles was solid birch that I ran through a thickness planer, assembled, ran through a drum sander, and then random orbit sander 220. The panels were made from a six millimeter Baltic birch that I sanded with the random orbit sander 220. I should also mention that I got the wood from a local reputable dealer, not from a home center. He used an air compressor to blow out any trap dust from the doors before staining. Here's the question. What did I do wrong? <laughs> I would have been happy if the whole door was either the lighter color or the darker color with the light frame and the dark panel. It just doesn't look right. The only thing that makes sense to me is that the surface structure of the top veneer of the birch plywood was more porous and thus able to absorb more stain. What do pros do in order to get the same color on solid wood and also veneered wood? Thanks again for the same, the great podcast guy. You're awesome. Cheers, Gavin. So he didn't say that. He actually said Sean is awesome too. He's not, <laughs> he's, he's not sold on Hui yet. No, not yet. So, he, he DM'd um, me and told me the same. Yeah. Uh, so <sighs> staining. I've never been a fan of staining. Many, many years ago, people would come to me and say, hey, can you make this out of maple and use a cherry stain? And I would say, no, I'll just make it out of cherry. <laughs> can you make this out of oak and put a dark walnut stain on it? No, I will just make it out of walnut for you. And I've stayed pretty much true to that to this day. Um, there are a couple times I've had to stain things. And when I do, I prefer to either use a water-based dye or some of the oil-based dyes, the pro stuff. It's very, very good, mm -hmm. but it's expensive. And you have to go to like a, a Sherwin-Williams Pro Center or something like that to get it. Very, very good stuff, but it's oil-based. The problem that I, I believe Gavin had, he's saying, you know, I used a Baltic birch, veneered panel and I used birch face frames, face frame. rails and styles. Mm -hmm. Baltic birch and birch are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. The Baltic birch usually, and then correct me if I'm wrong, usually comes from Russia. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, what I've heard. And mm -hmm. it's a completely different type of birch than what you might find from a local hardwood dealer, wherever you're at. Um, yeah. It's a domestic he doesn't product. Say, does he? Yeah. Where he's from? No. Anyways, the chances are very good that the, the the it's a different type. So let me let me give you an example. All maple is not the same. There's hard maple. There's soft maple. Mm -hmm. Two completely different things. Or you know, like a Claro walnut versus regular wal uh, black walnut. Right. Both right. walnut. They come from two different parts of the country, and they're both going to take, you know, heaven forbid you should put stain on them, but they're both going to take stain differently. Sure. Um, and I think that's what the problem was. So when, when he's asking, what do you do when you 
confronted with this problem of I want to use a veneered panel for my door, which is very reasonable because you want, you know, a stable door, you know, use like an MDF or plywood door. You want that to be stable so it doesn't, you know, blow your door up. Then you want the, 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 the door rails and styles to be that same kind of wood. Mm -hmm. Myself, I would veneer the door panel myself. Yeah. So I'd make sure I had the same species, Mm -hmm. but you may be able to find, you know, let's say a, a, a domestic type of birch yeah, yeah. plywood from your local hardwood. You know, go to the hardwood or your hardwood dealer if he's reputable and say, hey, listen, I need, I'm going to stain this. I need to make sure that the veneer on the plywood is the same as the solid wood I'm buying. Hmm. And you also need to do test samples. And yeah. those test samples need to be sanded to the exact same thing you plan to do it on your project. Do you guys have anything to add? I'm sure you do. Go for it, Sean. One thing that I would try if I were in your situation and already had all your pieces cut and and everything ready to go is I would have tried sanding the rails and styles and stop at a coarser grit, maybe 150, so that it's going to absorb a little bit more. You know, you're sanding it at 220. That's typically higher than I stop or higher than I sand when I'm when I'm going to stain something. I normally stop at 150 and and stain it. I would have tried that first and still gone up to the 220 on the panel because it's darker anyway and stop at 150 on the rails and styles and and see if it absorbs more and gives you that darker appearance. And if that didn't work, I would have uh purchased and made my own uh veneered panels. That's a that's that's a tough thing to Luckily the um you only made a few of them. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but that, that's what I would have tried in, in this situation is, is sand a coarser grid on the rails and styles to let it absorb more of that stain and see if that made a difference. That's a really good tip, Sean. Yeah. Guy, you had mentioned uh, a water-based dye or the oil-based uh, stain, correct? Mm-hmm. So uh, with the, with the water-based dye because it on a molecular scale it's just smaller it's going to penetrate deeper and whatnot do you do you tend to get like more consistency in color with that as opposed to uh, maybe whatever i don't know what stain he was well he he says here uh the verithane stain um do you get a little bit better consistency because it's just you know on a molecular scale smaller yes okay i don't know about the molecular scale thing yeah. I don't concern myself with such trivial. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's, I, uh, but it's, but it is more consistent in Yeah, in I color. should say I either use alcohol, denatured alcohol or, or water. It really depends. Right, right. The only time I really stain anything, I know this is, people are going to grow and they're going to go, uh, I know what's coming. Uh, I, I, know I, what's- I, I dye my walnut. Yes. Yeah. And the reason for that is walnut turns orange if it's exposed to UV. And in some cases, I do not want that. So I'll use the... uh, uh, Walnut trans tint. Yeah, the dark walnut trans tint and alcohol, and I'll put that on there. And it helps quite a bit Mm -hmm. um, to, to, to make it color fast. But there are times where I have had to dye things. Mm -hmm. And... I've actually used uh, some of the oil oil stains uh, with 
pretty good results, but they these were the commercial versions of them. This is not going and buying Minwax stuff. Right, right. And it's expensive, but it works really well. Um, I've used Sherwin-Williams a couple times. Uh, I've used, um, oh, I can't think of it. Uh, Benjamin Moore. Benjamin Moore. Yeah. Use Benjamin Moore a couple times and it's, it's, it's really expensive, but it works really well. And it, it mainly because it's, it gives nice, even color to it. It doesn't blotch as much, uh, especially for staining something like maple, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is notorious for, for blotching. But the, if you use like a, an alcohol based or a water based dye, um, an aniline dye, which is, you know, the, the particles like, we said, can you give us exact numbers of the molecular size of those particles? We, yeah, sure. I'll get I'll get back to you in about a month with that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm just busting your balls. I know. Um, <clears throat> it does give a much more even color oh, on the yeah. wood, yeah. but it dries really super fast. So you got to work fast. Yep. That's yep. the only thing with it. You got to work really fast. Yeah. Um, so- so I, I actually used the dark walnut dye uh, on my dining table because of because of your tip on one of your videos uh, where you had mentioned that you were using air-dried walnut and that there was inconsistencies in colors from board to board. And I, too, was using air-dried air walnut, and, and so that was one of the reasons why I actually dyed my walnut as well. And you can definitely – sorry, my baby is crying out there. Um, but that uh, really helped get the – especially the top – the tabletop a consistent color and it looks really great. This is good. It, it, it's it's good to do. So good. Yeah. Um, you know, getting back to Gavin's question, we kind of got off in the weeds. I apologize, but you know, it's a it's a tough thing. It's one of the, it's Sean brought up a really good point about the the grain. If you're going to stain something, there's no reason to go above 180, 150. Stopping at 150 and 180 is not a bad idea. And then you can go up to a higher grit on the Baltic birch, but they're still going to stain a different color because I believe they're different types of wood. I can't confirm that because I don't have the stuff in front of me, but that would be, uh, I I think, one of the issues that you're having. That's all I can think of, Gavin. I think Sean and we gave some good good answers too. So um, do you have anything to add to any of that, guys? No, that's, nope. that's it. That's it. So I guess that's going to do it for the show. And uh, we would like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And, of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from you, the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And I can be reached at guyswoodshop.com. And uh, where can you be found at, we? Alabamawoodworker.com. All my links to my social media are on my website. Sean, how about you? Simplecove.com and at Simplecove on, on the socials. All right. I think that was a good show, guys. What do you think? It was excellent. And if you folks out there thought it was a great show, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star review, and you could win a dream date with we. I'm married. 
Sean. Sean's the one that's not married. You can win a dream date with Sean even better yet. That is a dream date. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were going to get five stars until we messed up his cabinet and it's off a quarter inch. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't right. rate us on that. <laughs> on that note, we will end it. Hey, we'll talk to you guys later, all right? All right. Talk we'll to you later. You. Bye. Bye. Bye.